Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Patrick Holford. He's a leading spokesman on nutrition in the media, and he specializes in the field of mental health. He's the author of 40 books, which has been translated into over 30 languages worldwide. He has literally sold millions and millions of copies. Some of his best known books, The Optimum Nutrition Bible, is hugely famous on a global scale. And one of my favorite books I've ever read is The 10 Secrets of 100% Healthy People. Patrick is the founder of the Food for the Brain Foundation and a director of the Brain Bio Center. Now, the Brain Bio Center is a treatment center that specializes in helping those with mental health issues, ranging from depression to schizophrenia. In 1984, he founded the Institute for Optimum Nutrition, an independent educational charity with his mentor, the twice Nobel Prize winner, Dr. Linus Pauling, acting in the role as patron. Patrick, thank you for joining us in the studio. A pleasure. I, uh, you know, nearly all the authors that have been here and the professors and the doctors, you know, I've read one or two of their books. You're, you've written so many books. Uh, I, I counted the other day, it must be 25 plus? 40, actually. 40, yeah. wow. Yeah, yeah. In 30 languages now. Wow, that is yeah, absolutely yeah. incredible. Of all of them, I have to say your latest one, I think, is a, I mean, they're all brilliant, but as, this is a work of genius art. It explains everything we've been talking about, about low carbs uh, brilliantly. You co-wrote it with Jerome Byrne. Uh, for those that haven't got this yet, this is the first book you must rush out and buy on Amazon or where, wherever today. Your life is not complete till you read The Hybrid Diet, which we're going to talk about in some detail throughout the hour. Uh, but before we even get into that, uh, because you've written so many books, I want to start with a question. Uh, somebody said to me the other day, Steve, David Sackett, who... Uh, is the father of evidence-based medicine movement, said that when people study at medical school, 50% of what they learn uh, will either be outdated or wrong within five years of leaving. Well, if you've written 40 books, let's start with some of the things that maybe have changed in the last few years in, in thinking or you know, has your thinking changed mm -hmm. or have we... Well, I mean, actually, re remarkably not much, because also with these 40 books, I'm, I'm there doing corrections. So right, if something's okay. wrong, you change it for the next edition. I think uh, in the very early days, people were into food combining, separating yeah. your proteins from your carbs. Uh, this was based on a naturopath, uh, Dr. Hay, in the 1930s. I didn't really buy into it because it didn't make sense. I think sense is a really important yes. arbiter. Yeah. The point is that nature doesn't actually separate proteins from carbs. So mm -hmm. If you have a bean or a nut or a grain, it's got protein and carbs in it. So it's there in nature. So it didn't make a lot of sense. So I never really jumped on the bandwagon. But anyway, it turned out later on, there was nothing to do with the combo of protein and carbs. By the way, Dr. Hay realized that beans make you 
rather flatulent. So mm -hmm. he figured that we can't digest both. And it is true, we digest the protein mainly in the stomach and the carbohydrates lower down. But it turned out that there's something called glycosides in beans, uh, which we don't, or some people don't digest very well. If you take an enzyme called a glucosidase, problem solved. So that was wrong. Yeah. Uh, the second thing that I, I've changed and sort of backed off a bit is in the early days, we were finding quite high aluminium in the brains of mm -hmm. people who had died from Alzheimer's. Uh, so the thought was maybe aluminium is a major driver of Alzheimer's. Now, there was a certain point in history where that started to change. And the reason was in the old days when someone died and you had their brain, you'd put it in a jar of formaldehyde right. and the lid actually contained aluminium. Oh, my um, And uh, the formaldehyde was getting some of the aluminium that was being found. And, and then all that changed because uh, so from brains were frozen. Right. And uh, so now they do studies on thin slices of brain, yeah. not exposed to formaldehyde and the lid of the jar, which had the aluminium. Well, I'm so glad you yeah, just told yeah, me that because yeah, I'm yeah. just about to put my next book to print. And in yeah. there it says, be care of careful yeah. of aluminium because yeah. A, first of all, putting it under the armpits is probably yeah. not a good idea for yeah. cancer reasons. Yeah. Yeah. But also it probably has an effect on Alzheimer's. So maybe that's it, not I mean, I, it is a neurotoxin and you can get sort of dementia type effects from aluminium overdose, but it's certainly not what's driving Alzheimer's. Right. So that was a sort of an error. Yeah. And then the other area, which uh, I, I wasn't very fond of the Atkins diet, uh, mm -hmm. which in a way was our first ketogenic diet, no carbs, lots of meat and lots of dairy products. And uh, I at the time was very much promoting and still am a low a slow carb, low glycemic, low diet, mm -hmm. and was getting just as good results. And my concern then, and it actually still remains, is that if you do have a very high meat and a high dairy diet, uh, it's, uh, it, it would, you would expect there to be more cancer. Mm -hmm. And that, by the way, is uh, I've just been out in Ethiopia with tribes in the south uh, who have no metal and no phones and no cars and no roads, and they eat meat and eat it raw. Mm -hmm. But we don't eat meat raw. We like it crispy and fried and, you know, we like bacon, which is cured. And we know that burnt meats like barbecued meats, etc., etc., sure. have carcinogens. And also one of the problems with a, a more ketogenic diet, which of course is what I talk about in the hybrid diet, is it is actually very hard to get enough fiber. So sure. while you should go to the loo substantially twice a day, mm -hmm. very few people are when they eat that kind of diet. Yes. And that means that those potential meat carcinogens are in there for longer. Mm -hmm. um, and the other problem is that milk, uh, most people don't realize that we're not actually evolutionarily designed to consume milk after about four years. So if I tell you I'm in my 60s and I'm still breastfeeding from another species of animal. Which effectively taking milk yeah, is. That's, that's <laughs> right, you know. <laughs> And then if I ask you, can you name me a wild mammal or any other mammal that has dairy products from its own species um, after that initial rapid growth phase? The answer is no. So there's nothing wrong with milk. This isn't about organic or sheep or goat or anything else. Milk is designed to make cells grow. And we know that it will make colo colorectal cancer cells grow fast. So that's established. So I was always like a bit, you know, sort of anti-Atkins type approach. Uh, even though some will argue that if you cut out all the carbs, you lower the insulin and you remove the sugar, which is anti-cancer. 
So it's still in my sort of wait and see category. But mm -hmm. I think there are more intelligent ways these days to do a high fat keto diet than just loads of meat and loads of cheese. That's, so that's a that's slight really adjustment. Yeah, but yeah, that's yeah. about it, actually. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah. And we'll talk about Ethiopia later because I was yeah. there uh, last year as well. So uh, very interesting. Mm. And I've done Ethiopia, Kenya. I've come down ah. to Tanzania. I've stayed with the Maasai and again, ah, okay, eating okay, goats great. raw. And yeah. but I'll quickly tell you a story. I was one day, uh, and this is when I was obese. I was one day with them and I went jogging in the morning mm -hmm. and this uh, Maasai tribesman looked at me a bit strange. Why is he going running? And that afternoon, we had some goat and I took the fat off and just ate the meat. And he looked at me and in broken English, he went, ah, you do this running and you take the fat off to be big and Western. I went, no, completely the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I do this yeah. running and don't eat the fat. Yeah, yeah. So I want to look like you slender Maasai. And he went, ah, oh, it's not working. <laughs> Anyway, yeah. that's for another day. Um, that was all brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Let's change tack completely and we'll, we will come back to the hybrid later. And I love this idea of uh, you, your views on what the right diets are. But let's quickly go back in history a little bit because you met somebody who I, ever since I've been into this uh, research on health the last four years, I've literally idolised Linus Pauling and the work he did over the years. Mm -hmm. And, and, and you actually knew him, worked with him. Tell us a bit about the man behind the scenes, your association with him, uh, and what we can learn from Linus Pauling's. Well, actually, I'll tell you about the, the, the guy that first turned me on, which led to Linus Pauling, a wonderful um, psychiatrist who was the head of psychiatric research in Canada uh, called Dr. Aidan Hoffer. And now I'm, I'm a psychologist. So in the 70s, I was studying psychology, focused on schizophrenia. And I read this double-blind control placebo trial, which turned out to be the first in the history of psychiatry, giving high-dose B vitamins or placebos to schizophrenics, and they were getting better. And uh, it was really amazing. So I jumped on a plane, went to Canada, met Dr. Aben Hoffer, and I said, how many people have you treated? And he was in charge of all the mental institutions in, in Saskatchewan. You know, think of one flew over the cuckoo's nest. Yeah, and he yeah. had observed how they experienced life and their, their auditory and visual hallucinations, and, and he called them disperceptions. So, and he figured out that the brain wasn't working and deduced that it was to do with a lack of certain nutrients. And uh, anyway, he said, I've treated 3,000 people. And I said, what's your success rate? And he said, 85% cure. And I wow. ne nearly fell off my chair because I'd never seen a cured schizophrenic. Yeah. So I said, I've never, you know, what's your definition of cure? It's a very bold claim. And he said, uh, free of symptoms, able to socialize with family and friends and paying income tax. Now, <laughs> I had never seen that. So I said, can I meet some, which yeah. I then did. And then I said, I have one more question for you, which is, can I become your student? Anyway, meanwhile, a man comes up from California with his son who gets treated by Ebenhofer and gets better. So he buys 50 copies of his, of his book, takes it back to Carmel, California, gives one to every doctor in the region. And one of the doctors has invited to tea Dr. Linus Pauling. Now, Dr. Linus Pauling, by that stage, had two Nobel Prizes and 48 PhDs. Oh, he was a, really a genius, and yeah. he took over. He, he understood what Einstein was saying in physics. Yeah. Well, didn't I, I yeah. read once? I don't know if this is true. Einstein yeah. actually said, when questioned, somebody said yeah. to Einstein, "You're a genius," and he yeah. said, "No, the only genius in the world is Linus Pauling." Yeah. Well, I think he said, "Yes, if you want a real genius, it's exactly. Linus Pauling." Okay. I mean, he, and 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 Pauling understood what Einstein was saying and applied it to chemistry, which is the origin of all modern chemistry. I mean, he was just a super bright guy. 
So anyway, he picks up this book because he's invited to tea with, with the doctor. He sees the book, starts reading it, and within a couple of years, him and Abram Hoffer have uh, start to collaborate. And they basically establish this idea that we're all genetically different, so we all have slightly different chemical needs. And when you get sick, your, your sort of biochemistry is out of whack. And uh, in the future, they predicted that we'll study genetics and we'll find out what an individual person needs in the way of their nutrient intake. Mm -hmm. So it won't be about drugs, it's going to be about nutrients. And very often you'll need larger amounts of nutrients to bring yourself back into balance than what you need just to maintain balance. And for example, we found a lot of um, the schizophrenics, they had a genetically much higher need for B vitamins than someone else. So we're not all the same. And they called this orthomolecular medicine, the right molecules. Anyway, I then met Linus Pauling through Dr. Abram Hoffer. Um, and I, I, I had this sort of aha moment, and this is in the very early 1980s. I thought, could it really be? And you've got to wind back the clock then. No one had any idea that nutrition had anything to do with mental health, anything to do with cancer. Uh, you know, even things like diabetes was sort of resistant. It still is ridiculously. Uh, so, you know, we didn't know about essential fats. We didn't know, uh, you know, about antioxidants. Some of those very early days. And I, I had this radical idea. Could it be that all this cancer, diabetes, heart disease, mental illness is a function of what I called sub-optimum nutrition? Mm -hmm. Started an institute of optimum nutrition, which is a charity, uh, in 1984, decided we needed an army of nutritional therapists to work with doctors. Uh, that's the vision, remains the vision. We now have about 10,000 in the UK. So, wow, so the army is made. Wow, that's and, a good uh, you know, we need, Exactly, yeah. we just need to bridge that gap. And uh, yeah, that's really you know, why I started. And, and Linus Pauling was the patron of our Institute for Optimum Nutrition, a genius. And he, he died in his 90s, and I filmed him just before he died. He was researching one of the now hottest areas of uh, cardiovascular medicine, which we may touch on when we talk about cholesterol. Yeah. But what I really like about Linus Pauling, because before he died, he said to me, Patrick, just follow the logic. It's right. the logic that counts. These randomized controlled trials, they come later. And I've realized in life that if you follow the logic of things, you get to the truth. And if you want to know why we're all so messed up and sick, it's you just follow the money. Right. You know, yeah. The logic is the light and the money is the greed and the dark. And that's yeah. that's corporatization of yeah. our food, the corporatization of Yeah, and it's tablets. astonishing because back in those days we had the erroneous belief that once we had the you know evidence, everything would change. And now we've got the evidence and it's not changing for a fundamental reason. You can't patent a nutrient. Yes. Um, if something is in a food, nature's already made it, so you can't patent it. If you don't patent it, you don't get the monopoly. If you haven't got the monopoly, you can't charge exorbitant amounts of money. And if it wasn't for that ability to patent a drug and not patent the nutrient, we would not be consuming all these vast quantities of pharmaceutical drugs. We'd be dealing with the fundamental underlying causes of most of these diseases, which is suboptimum nutrition. That's great advice. In yeah. fact, a, a few doctors recently have sat in this very room and said, my biggest excitement these days is de 
prescribing medication mm-hmm. and getting people back to good nutrition. Yes. Yeah. How many people can I get off more of the drugs they're on and getting back to getting to the yeah. fundamental you know, problem of their illnesses? In fact, Linus Pauling's book, How to Live Longer and Feel Better, it was written in the 80s and it's a fabulous, fabulous book. And I just quickly this morning uh, went through and highlighted some pieces. And uh, he puts in there uh, 12 steps to living healthier for longer. And the reality is, not once there does it mention taking medicine. Yeah. Uh, there's some great lines in there around vitamin C, vitamin E, the B, and so on. Um, and when this came out, this is when in America, they were so anti-meat, so anti-eggs and high cholesterol. And even here, he stood up for himself and he went, eat lots of eggs and meat, they're good for yeah. you. And then the yeah. other bits, um, you know, it's just fantastic. If you get a chance to read this, it was written in the 80s, but nearly all of it is still totally, totally relevant. So there's a- One of the lovely bits of logic was that he knew um, that all animals make vitamin C, except for fruit-eating bat, the red-vented bulbul bird, the guinea pig, um, and primates. And what he noticed was the animals that make vitamin C don't get colds and they don't get cancer. So he started to look at that and, uh, and to consume and test the amount of vitamin C that an animal would make if they were exposed to a virus. Uh, and so he started to focus on vitamin C and colds and vitamin C and cancelling. And he got trashed, you know, for doing that. But we do now know, I mean, I'm, I'm in my 60s. I have never suffered from a cold for more than 12 hours because the second I get the first signs of an infection, I take one gram, uh, or usually two actually, to, start to kick it off every hour. Every hour, wow. Because you've got to get your vitamin yeah, yeah. C level really high. Yeah. That's antiviral. Yeah. But one of the hottest areas in, in, in cancer medicine uh, is intravenous vitamin C. It's effectively a sort of safe chemotherapy. Uh, and you know these, this is what he put on the map. <clears throat> Simple logic. Yeah. Animals who make it don't get these problems. Animals who don't do. Well, I don't know whether it came from his research, but I read something a few years back that said uh, the average weight goat produces 15 grams a day. That's correct. Of vitamin C. Yeah. And when that goat becomes ill, its yeah. own body yes. produces 100 grams of vitamin a lot C more. a day. Exactly. And That's yet true. we don't create any ourselves. No. And our crazily low uh, 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 guidelines from the government yeah. and the EU and EFSA yeah, is yeah. we should have 80 milligrams a yeah, day. That's the that, RDA. It's the ridiculous the dietary arbitrary. Yeah, I mean, just and incredibly low. It is. And if we say, I mean, for example, with, with colds, we know that people get less colds, shorter colds, you know, less severe colds, uh, if they're having grams of vitamin C. So in other words, they're more efficient. So in my view, a recommended intake should be the amount that has you be the most efficient, you mm-hmm. know, with the lowest risk for cancer, lowest risk for... I mean, it's very interesting. I was called in a few years ago by the Sierra Leone task force when Ebola struck. They were looking for some clues. And I said, well, it's quite interesting, isn't it? That Ebola virus yep. um, only affects primates, monkeys, humans, yep. and bats, right. fruit-eating bats doesn't affect pigs, goats, dogs, rats, cats. What a great you know. way of looking at so it. So I said, why not? You know, you've got people who are dying, you've got nothing to do. Why not, you know, do some intravenous vitamin C and see what it does? But of course, as ever, you know, whenever there's a new disease that arrives on the scene, you know, big farmers in there to try and find the- Make some money. Yeah, the vaccine or the drug yeah. or whatever it happens to be. So I don't think it ever got tested. 
but I think it's uh, certainly worthy of being tested. Yeah, and the, I mean, the yeah. only side effect I can see from having too much vitamin C is you get to a point where it acts a bit like a, a laxative, and therefore, if you start to go to the toilet too often, just cut back. You know? Yeah, it's like a vindaloo, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and for many people, that's a benefit. Yeah. So vitamin C, he was, yeah, uh, orthomolecular medicine using nature to fix a problem mm -hmm. um, rather uh, than tablets and medicine. Um, now, let's go on to Alzheimer's if we can. Uh, you co-wrote a great book uh, with a friend of yours, friend of ours, Deborah Hansen. Colson, um, um, sorry. Colson. Colson. Uh, yeah. I've written it down wrong <laughs> again. Uh, one of the spell checkers yeah, yeah, we have yeah, here yeah, yeah. always changes Colson to Hansen. I've <laughs> been dyslexic, that doesn't yeah. help. Anyway, uh, you co-wrote the Alzheimer's prevention plan. What's your latest thinking on Alzheimer's and somebody who, who's well, affected it in our own family? Very keen to hear your it, response. Th there's basically two things. Your brain is made of neurons, and those brain cells, neurons, are actually made of omega-3 and a very specific kind called DHA. Mm -hmm. And I might just point out here, you get DHA in fish and fish oils. You do not get it in chia or flax seeds. Okay. So if you're vegan and you think you can get enough omega-3 from chia or flax seeds, which are great foods, the kind in vegetable foods, um, which is called alpha-linolenic acid, only 0.05% converts to DHA. DHA is over 90% of the structural fat in the brain. So <clears> when we read that you can convert AHA yeah. to DHA, you can, but it's a minute amount. It is. Right. <clears throat> and not enough to really build a healthy brain, especially if you're pregnant and then you've, you've got to nourish two brains. Now, that, that DHA, that omega-3, has to attach to things called phospholipids. Again, very rich in fish, very rich in eggs. I've always been a fan of eggs. There's never been any evidence they're bad for you. The attaching is done um, by a process called methylation, which is dependent on B vitamins. And you know that you're not good at methylation if you have a raised blood level of something called homocysteine. Mm -hmm. Now, in America, the lead organization is the National Institute of Health, and their researchers looked at the cause of Alzheimer's, and they attribute 22% of the cause of Alzheimer's to a raised homocysteine lack of B vitamins, and 22% to a lack of seafood and low omega-3. Now, um, down the road in Oxford University, they took <clears throat> several hundred people with pre-Alzheimer's and originally gave them uh, high-dose B vitamins. And by the way, B12 is the critical one because the older people get... We can't. You don't absorb it don't so absorb well. It, yeah. And some of that yeah. has to do with medication, drugs, antacids. And uh, what they did was they gave them the high-dose B vitamins, or placebo, and they got a 53% um, <clears throat> reduction in their rate of brain shrinkage in one year compared to placebo, and virtually no further memory loss. But then they went back to the original blood samples. Um, they looked at how much omega-3 was in the blood and split the group into the third with the highest omega-3, and the third with the lowest. Now, the third with the lowest did not get a benefit from the B vitamins. And the third with the highest omega-3 had 73% less brain shrinkage and wow. no further memory loss. So the point is, to build a brain, you've got to have both the omegas and the B vitamins. 
We're now at the point where you're looking at something close to nine times less shrinkage of the Alzheimer's area of the brain if you get your homocysteine level down with B vitamins and have enough omega-3. And wow. that is at least one third of the total risk for Alzheimer's. So proven in studies, brain scans. And, and you mentioned Linus Pauling, but <clears throat> the wonderful Professor Oxford, Dr. Professor David Smith, who was vice dean of Oxford Medical School, um, professor of pharmacology. He got their pharmacology department up to the level where it's rated as the best in the world. He um, identified what Alzheimer's is, um, and now there's a brain scan that's used globally of the central area of the brain. Uh, he identified homocysteine very high in, I mean, you know, genius. All published, all out there. And we did, a, we did a costing of what it would mean. Uh, we have a little charity uh, where you can go do a cognitive function test online. If not good, you're meant to go to your doctor, get your homocysteine tested. If not good, take the B vitamins less than 10 p a day. Uh, if that was done across Europe, it would save 50 billion euros oh. in, in five years, you know? Oh, let me just we stop. could do it tomorrow. Let me just stop you there <clears throat> for a second. Okay, that's a good place for a break. To give you a chance to have a little drink for um, your throat. <clears> throat> uh, just take a second and yeah, yeah, yeah. No, just keep <clears throat> rolling. But I just want to let Patrick okay. regain his uh, with some water. So with people, said, let me stop you there. So, because you're right, B vitamins aren't expensive, ten p a day. So why doesn't everybody know this? Is is this again? corporations going, well, we don't want that to be the answer. We want to find a way of getting more drugs out there, therefore suppress the fact it's as simple as upping your omega level, certainly yeah. omega-3, uh, and more B vitamins. Is that why the word's not out yet? Or? Yes, I mean, it's, it's terrible. This, uh, we knew this in 2010. Half a million people in Britain have got Alzheimer's simply through the ignoring of this. The science is impeccable. I've met the top of Public Health England, NHS, Alzheimer's with Professor David Smith. Uh, we've been to all the conferences. I mean, you know, the whole lot. It's all there. Um, and the simple reason why it's not happening, I believe, is because the drug companies can't make any money out of it. And in fact, one of the, one of the uh, drug companies came to Professor David Smith and said, if your B vitamins was a patentable drug, this is a, this is a you know, 20 billion a year. Yeah. Thing. And, and, and here's, here's something that really is amazing. While we've got nearly up to 90% less brain shrinkage, the best drug is 2%. Uh, we actually had 30% of people no longer with a clinical dementia rating. Mm -hmm. Best drug, nothing. Wow. Amount of money spent in Britain yeah. um, by the government and all the medical research councils yeah. on Alzheimer's prevention research since 98 less than 200 grand. Amount of money spent by Big Pharma on trying to develop a drug for Alzheimer's, 200 billion. Sorry, we spent only 200,000 pounds on the research. On Alzheimer's prevention research. Yeah. And yet they're spending billions on trying to get a drug for it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Can you see why my book's called Fat and Furious? <coughs> my mum's got yeah. early onset dementia. Yeah. We think it's Alzheimer's, yeah. but she won't go and get tested. Uh, and that's why I'm furious, because yeah. there's answers out there, which always comes back to, totally. you said at the very beginning of this hour, yeah. follow the logic. Yes. Yeah, so follow the logic. We didn't have Alzheimer's hundreds no. years ago, but we ate more fish, we yeah. had more vitamins in our food. The soil was giving us more vitamins, more minerals, more everything. Uh, 
Well, Follow also, the logic. No, absolutely. And the thing that what happens here for a lot of older people is they don't absorb B12. Now, the RDA for B12 is 2 micrograms, which is way too low. You want to have at least 10. So a good multi. I take 10 micrograms every day. But if you're not absorbing it very well, um, you actually need about 500 micrograms. Right. Wow. You don't need that much in your blood, yeah. um, but you have to take that much in to get enough across. Yes. So this is a classic example where that sort of you can get it all from your diet. It's just not possible. Yeah. Now, we don't know exactly why, as you get older, you, you, know, you absorb less well, but one of the most commonly prescribed drugs are these antacids, which uh, usually end in azole, they're called proton pump inhibitors. And uh, they stop you making stomach acid. And stomach acid, it's the stomach secretions that are required to absorb B12. Right, okay. So we know that the antacid drugs, the diabetes drug metformin, yep. and diuretics used for um, lowering high blood pressure, they all effectively knock out B12. Crikey. So a lot of the medication that people are taking is actually increasing their risk for Alzheimer's, which is a preventable disease. Nobody needs to get Alzheimer's. And the book, The Alzheimer's Prevention Plan, is up to date. Our charity, which is called foodforthebrain.org, if you go there, mm -hmm. you can do this online cognitive function test. So if you are diagnosed with a cognitive problem, dementia, you are sent to a memory clinic where they mm -hmm. will do a cognitive function test. We got permission from the, the top experts to digitize it. Okay. And so our foodforthebrain.org have a free online cognitive function test because actually you can start to see slips in cognition about 30 years before a problem. If not good, you measure the blood level of homocysteine, which every doctor should be doing. In Scandinavia they are, but not here. We're way behind the curve. Can we ask for that when we get We can ask for it and they'll okay. go, what? <laughs> you know? And, and of course, if your memory's going, it's yeah. not always easy to remember what the test is, mm -hmm. homocysteine. I, I say think of gay chapel. Okay. That might not be very PC, you know, Sistine Chapel. <laughs> yeah. But you think, okay, that's the test I need. Yeah. And there is actually, um, there is a kit you can now buy from a lab called yorktest.com. You can buy the kit, prick your finger, do it yourself. Okay. So you right. can do that. If it's above 10, you need more B vitamins. Uh, it's as simple as that. It would cost nothing to implement. Sure. Uh, we now have over 300,000 people who've done the test and you get a very nice Substantial report. Substantial numbers. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So we're doing exactly all that would need to happen uh, is that all GPs um, tell all their patients over 50, do the test. If not good, come and see me. I'll run the blood test. If not good, I'll give you this cheap you know, vitamin. So. This is a, you know, we can eliminate Alzheimer's. So when people say the NHS, we need more money, we need more money, we don't. What we need is to solve the underlying causes of the two diseases uh, that are costing the NHS the most and us, the taxpayer, and that is dementia and diabetes, both of which are preventable, both of which are solvable. And I guess there's a link between the two there from what you've just said in the sense that if you take metformin because of your diabetes, mm. that then knocks out B12 or reduces the ability to yeah. absorb B12 even more. Yes. Therefore, you can then come yes. to a conclusion there will be more people eventually with diabetes suffering mental health issues, especially diabetes. Yeah, you've got uh, double, uh, if you have diabetes, you have double the risk of, of dementia. Well. So, you know, all of these diseases are preventable. We have 700 people a day diagnosed with diabetes. It's right. frightening, isn't it? 
And I went on telly, I mean, back in the early, about 2000, GMTV. So give me a type 2 diabetic and give me six weeks. And at the end of six weeks, this person had no sign, measure, symptom, anything that would have any doctor diagnose her with diabetes. She was off all medication, no longer diagnosable with diabetes in six weeks. I got slammed in those days because it was heresy to say that you can reverse type 2 diabetes. Oh, yeah, you, you were way ahead of the curve. Yeah. They, back then it was, what was yeah. it? It was chronic progressive. Yeah. And there was a third word I can't remember yeah. now, but you couldn't get rid of it yeah. back then. And you stood yeah. up and said, yeah. and now we know you can. You know, yeah. Diabetes.co.uk, they reckon around 70,000 people yeah. that have used yeah. their website yeah. have put it into remission. Yeah. And I mean, let me put this into context. And, and we, you know, these statistics are very, very clear. And I'm underestimating in the last 10 years, more people have died in Britain um, from diet-related preventable diseases than all the people who died in Britain during World War II. Oh, say that one more time, because yeah. that's just frightening. Yeah. Every 10 years, the number of people who are dying from diet-related preventable diseases every 10 years is more than the total number of people who died in World War II, UK population. That puts pharmaceutical companies chasing greed, our big food companies looking after their shareholders up there with Hitler. It kind of does. Doesn't yeah. it? Yeah. It's frightening. Yeah. Well, thank goodness we've got people like you around to get the word out there. I mean, you know, there are still doctors today. My dad last year diagnosed diabetes type 2. And it is type 2 we're talking about, not type 1. That is a very different um, scenario. But type 2, which they used to say was progressive, you know, once you've got it, you've got it for life. You can't get rid of it. My dad's been told that by his doctor. Um, and the only advice he got from his doctor was just cut back on everything. And yeah, uh, yeah. I said, well, that's just nonsense, Dad. Yeah. You know, it used to be called sugar diabetes for a reason. It's yes. caused by sugar. Cut down sugar, cut down the carbs that turn into sugar. Mm -hmm. And yet the reality is today, 70,000 people in Great Britain have put it in remission just by ignoring the guidelines we've got mm -hmm. and cutting down on the carbohydrates and certainly the processed carbs. Scary. Now, um, so that's fantastic on our salmas. I'm going to see what I can do my own mother and see if I can get her to have more Omega and, uh, and, and more B vitamins. Um, talk now about the hybrid diet. You work with Jerome Byrne. How did it all start? Yeah. And, and, and what takeaways? I mean, you've got to go and buy the book anyway because it's absolutely incredible. I was saying to Patrick earlier that I always scribble little notes in a book. And this book, along with uh, Robert uh, Lustig's book, uh, who you're going to hear from, uh, Hacking the American Mind very, very soon. Uh, I've, I've scribbled, scribbled more questions and notes in here and learnt more than any of the book I've ever read. So go and get it. It's fantastic. Um, tell us again the reason behind it and, and give us some takeaways from it. Yeah, well, Jerome Byrne is uh, twice awarded Britain's best medical journalist. And uh, he was politically very interested in the demonization of fat. And uh, as I said, even in my very first book in 81, it's not about fat. So we've had all this idea that you get fat because you eat fat, you get heart disease from too much fat. And, all, and that's just not true. The science has never been there. And he became the sort of the journalist that uh, all the people into a high fat, ketogenic, very low carb diet sort of gravitated towards. And he got very excited about it. And I said, is there anything you can do with your high fat, very low carb ketogenic diet that I cannot do uh, with my slow-carb, 
what we call a low glycemic, low diet. So I, I eat carbs, uh, but I choose the ones that release their sugar content very slowly, and I eat them, you know, so I have a certain portion of brown rice, whole wheat pasta, whatever. And that's, and I sort of challenged him to a duel. That, that's kind of how it started. But we were both fascinated by the fact that the body can run on either glucose, which is the sugar fuel, the five-star carb fuel is glucose, mm -hmm. um, or fat, and particularly ketones. When you, for example, fast and you start to burn your body fat, you turn the fat in the liver into something called ketones. Ketones is a, a sort of new fuel. And I got really interested uh, when looking at brain cells, which is kind of my area of speciality. And uh, if you feed a brain cell either glucose, sugar fuel, or ketones, fat fuel, uh, it actually prefers ketones. Wow. And I then got interested in the fact that babies for the first six months of life are mainly running on ketones and they are building up to one million connections in their brain a second. Wow. So, so the brain loves ketones, it also uses glucose. Would that be, I mean, I, I spoke to you last yeah. Thursday from my yeah. holiday. I'd eaten way too much food that week, had yeah. a few many two glasses of wine. We were talking about your new book, which we'll talk yeah. about on another day. Yeah. And I thought, I said to my wife, you know what? I haven't done a long fast for a while. Yeah, so yeah. I started on Saturday and I hadn't had a single calorie till Wednesday. And my brain just feels, I'm, I'm just so so much more on it than normal. Mm -hmm. And is that because it's gone, oh, back into using ketones and Sort fat. of, yeah. And that's kind of where we started to, uh, uh, I mean, the nice thing is we were pushing, you know, should we have a lot of meat? Should we have, you know, we're pushing it. You know, Jerome and I like to debate these things. And what we started to realize is that when you go on to a certain kind of ketogenic diet, it triggers a, a cellular repair process. That's what happens in fasting. And uh, when you have a lot of carbs, it's growth. And the big problem of humanity is we're eating nonstop carbs. Um, so we have overgrowth. You know, obesity is widespread. It's a joke, right? Beast is widespread. <laughs> I um, get it. <laughs> you know, but also we have the growth diseases like yeah. cancer. Yeah. You know, where we've now crossed the one in three lifetime risk. We're heading towards one in two. It's ridiculous. So yeah, in the that's, old that's cancer research's own figure. They yeah, say yeah, uh, yeah. adults, uh, not adults. People alive today in Great Britain, there will probably be a one in two chance. Isn't that yeah. frightening? It's, it's a one in two chance shocking. of getting cancer. And when you just imagine for a minute that a cell in the body, I mean, in order to switch to a cancer cell, it has to have an environment that is really hostile. So we have created um, an environment for our cells that is so significantly hostile that one in two of us you know, are going to develop yeah. cancer. I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. So what we started to realize is we've got this flexibility. We can run on fat ketones, we can run on glucose, and um, maybe we're designed to switch every now and again. And we started to sort of realize that as we get sort of more towards, you know, the end of the book. So I'm now working with some very interesting research on the switching mechanism and mm -hmm. what it does. I'm not convinced that we are meant to be on a high-fat ketogenic diet all the time. Um, you know, it's uh, it's it's we don't know that. Mm -hmm. So we've got on the one hand one group of demonised, you know, carbs, you know, and the other group demonising fat, um, and you know we're still working that territory. But what's clear is whether you go. Oh, here's something that that really class is classic. Um, Paul Kenny, professor in New York. Dubliner, 
Uh, he took rats, fed them nothing but fat. They gained a bit of weight, not that much after a month, you know, because they would eat the fat, feel satisfied, stop. Yep. Then he fed the same group of rats, nothing but sugar. They gained a bit of weight, but perhaps not as much as you might expect. Again, they would eat the sugar, feel satisfied, stop. Then he fed them 50% fat and 50% sugar. And they at the were, same time. At the same time, yep. which basically is what junk food is. Yeah. Um, and they went ballistic. They just binged. They couldn't stop eating. And uh, it's, it, it fools the brain. And in nature, you never find high fat with high carbs. You get fat and protein. Yeah. You get carbs and protein, yeah. but you don't get high fat, high carbs. That is junk food. It, it, it affects the brain in a certain way. You can't stop eating. But I noticed something which he didn't really pick up on. He was feeding them cheesecake. So actually, it was high fat, high carbs, and milk proteins. Yeah. Now, what we know about milk um, is that it's sort of addictive. Uh, and it's meant to be, because you know, when a baby's breastfeeding, they've mm -hmm. got to become a sort of addict you know, for the breast. So that, that's one thing you know, uh, it also does. And I think it's that combo. That's why the milk chocolate bar you know, with dairy, high fat, high carbs, can't stop eating. We can run on That's fat, so we can run on carbs, put the two together, yeah. and uh, and you can create a food that people won't stop eating junk food. Well, you know, I didn't think about this when I read the book, but yeah. just the little things just popped into the brain, because we're very much talking about primal all the time. My mm. belief is that evolution takes such a long time that really all we should do, back to what you said earlier, follow the logic. Yeah. The logic must be, you know, the body's evolved to eat what we used to eat thousands of years yeah. ago. Well, I guess your hybrid diet, if you think about it, certainly think about the UK, we get to autumn, there's fruit everywhere. So caveman, yeah. our ancestors yeah. would have binged on that fruit for a yeah. couple of weeks. Yeah. And that would have been the end of it because now yeah. the fruit's gone, we've got to go back to eating meat. And yeah, that's meat for a while. Yeah. And then there's no in carbs. The, no carbs. Yeah. And then in the, I don't know, June, July, August, whenever yeah. the, the, the plants yeah. grew, they'd probably binge on that for yeah. a while. So it was always one or the other, but not yeah, both at the same time. Exactly. And in Chinese medicine, they say that um, uh, a woman will gain weight in the summer months and then lose weight in the winter months. Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's a cycle. Something else, because I love evolution. I mean, I test all my ideas upon this. And, and the one big thing that people don't realize is that, I mean, we have the same genes as a chimpanzee. Mm -hmm. I mean, 98.5%, exactly the same genes. And yet, six million years ago, we split from the gorillas and the chimpanzees and the bonobos. And about 100,000 years ago, we have Homo sapiens with a, a brain that is three times bigger. And our USP is our brain. You know, it's not the body. You know, we're not particularly great at that. And the question is, why? What happened? And I'm totally convinced that what happened was that a subgroup uh, of, of, of our primate ancestors started to exploit wetlands, swamplands, the river's edge, the estuaries. We became upright through wading in water. We lost our hair. We got our layer of subcutaneous fat, which all the marine animals like seals, etc., mm -hmm. dolphins have. Um, our larynx dropped, which actually is a prerequisite for advanced speech. Babies are born with a waxy waterproof layer called the vernix, which is not in any land-based mammal and is identical to that found in seals and sea lions. Wow. Uh, even when you're in the water a long time and your fingers mm -hmm. go wrinkly, that is a very good adaptation to catch fish. Mm -hmm. 
Well, that's how I started my first book, yeah. saying that's yeah. how we know evolution takes a long time. Because yeah. when you go in the bath and your yeah. fingers go crinkly yeah. and your toes do and all wrinkly, yeah. you don't need it anymore. Yeah. But yeah. we did thousands of years ago. Exactly. Yeah. So I reckon that it was, uh, you know, and actually the brain size 1.45 kg 10,000 years ago, it's now 1.35. We have a smaller brain now. Wow. And, and the story that we've been sold on absolutely no evidence is that we dropped out of the trees, stood up, and went hunting. Now, um, I, I run safaris in Kenya. You know, I spend a lot of time in the wild with the Maasai and all the rest of it. And, you know, the last thing you do if you want to catch an animal is to stand up. You have to be a really good crawler and then a really good sprinter. Mm-hmm. And we're a lousy crawler, lousy sprinter. <laughs> I don't buy that at all. Now, originally in the sort of paleo idea, yeah. uh, people say, well, what we were eating, we were hunting animals, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that's already quite late in the process. You know, the, the interesting thing is what made us homo sapiens. And the other thing that is a bit of a misfit uh, is the idea on a high meat, you know, high dairy, high cheese, keto diet, is you want fatty meat. Mm-hmm. Now, actually, wild animals have about 3% uh, of their body weight as fat. So if you're out there, you know, in, in, in the plains of Serengeti, those animals are lean. Agreed. They do not yeah. have fatty meat, yeah. you know. And then the next thing is that, the, the, you know, the big thing we're told is you've got to eat tons of meat, yeah. you know, to make protein. Mm-hmm. You know, to make muscle. And again, we know that's just not true. You don't need much more protein to make much more muscle. And it's not about muscle. Uh, it's actually about the brain. So to put this in context, in 1998, the Chinese did really badly in the Olympics and a mandate was sent from on high. Why are the Americans beating us? You know, And uh, they did the research. They said, it's milk. Really? They drink lots of milk. And if you do drink lots of milk as a child, you're taller. But you also will increase your risk very substantially of breast cancer, prostate cancer, and various other uh, problems. So now the Chinese are importing loads of milk so they can be bigger and stronger. But it's not going to make them healthier. So what we need is brain power, not muscle power. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. Uh, Over milk... Obviously, it's a problem as we get older because we weren't designed for it. Yes. Uh, what sort of age should we try to wean our kids off milk? I've got a four-year-old that probably still has two pints a day. Is that too yeah. much? Or, Well, I mean, I think, you know, we know that it causes cancer cells to grow. And, you know, a two-year-old is not going to have cancer cells. So, you know, a four-year-old is not such a big problem. Um, what concerns me, and again, the logic of this is very, very strong. The, the hard-on evidence is not quite there yet. But what milk does is it promotes a hormone, which is called IGF-1, insulin-like growth hormone. And if you look at that across the age, it absolutely peaks. There's a big spike in the mid-teenage years when the breasts are fully formed and the prostate is fully formed. And it's quite likely, and certainly the logic would, would, would say this, that overconsumption of dairy products in teenage years may produce a sort of overgrowth of breast cells and prostate cells, which could set a background for a greater risk later in life. Right, got you. Um, so I would say that by the time you're hitting puberty, it's not necessary. Now, of course, everyone says, but, but what about the calcium, you know? 
Um, you, you know, milk has calcium, bones have calcium, we need to have milk for, for, for bones. Now, it's very, very clear, and two of the top professors in America, Professor uh, Ludwig and, uh, and Jenkins, uh, both say this, the top professors in nutrition, there is absolutely no link at all between children's bone mass density and milk consumption. Wow. And between postmenopausal women's risk for osteoporosis and, and, uh, and dairy consumption. No link at all. Wow. Absolutely not. It's a myth. Yes, we need calcium. But you know, if you're eating beans and nuts and veg and fish and whatever, you're going to get calcium. It's not a lack of calcium that's driving osteoporosis later in life. It's not only, but mainly a lack of vitamin D. Yeah. Because if you go to the equator where there's plenty of sun, no osteoporosis, and then if you go to you know, England or Scotland, you know, you would have a higher risk. The further you are from the equator, the greater the risk, largely to do with a lack of sunshine. And correct me if I'm wrong, and let me put this in, in layman's terms, you can have as much calcium as you want, but if you haven't got the sunshine to activate that calcium, then it's not going to do its yeah, job anyway. No. So studies that have given, for example, postmenopausal women calcium without vitamin D don't work. Simple as that. So, you know, if you fancy a bit of cheese or a bit of yogurt or a bit of something, every now and again, from my point of view, I, I can't say there's a problem with that unless you've already got colorectal cancer, prostate cancer, and breast cancer, in which case I would say have none. Yeah. Um, but dairy products should not be a staple food, an mm -hmm. everyday food. And if you can get it, try and go organic. And if you can try yeah. and get that that's fermented, so at least there's some, some benefit. Something, and, yes. Yeah. Let's stay on cancer for a second then. So. Uh, Milk, certain cancers, we shouldn't be having too much. Give me another four or five things that is driving this onslaught of cancer. I yeah. lost, uh, we had a lovely piano teacher called Carl, 35 mm. years old, was overweight, but no other symptoms, died at 35 of cancer of the pancreas this year. My children are devastated. He, he was teaching mm -hmm. four of my children for years. Lovely young man, really hurt, really is not my children sideways. Uh, and we've, I've lost grandparents, yeah. I lost my auntie at 55 to cancer. What's, give us four or five things, yeah. obviously milk for certain ones, but overall, what's the four or five best yeah. preventative? Let's not, let's assume we haven't got it yet. Yeah. What should we yeah. be doing yeah. if it's gonna affect one, one in two of us according to cancer yeah. research? Give me some thoughts well, on that. I mean, first of all, uh, and this is totally not a claim, but I met a guy a couple of years ago who had pancreatic cancer, which has a very, 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 very low survival. That's right. And uh, he said, uh, you know, three years ago I was diagnosed, I was given three months to live, and I've been absolutely fine for the last two and a half years, I've got no problem at all, absolutely fine. And I said, that's amazing, because when I wrote my book, Seno to Cancer, there was a little evidence around sugar, and there was a little hint of possibly caffeine, but really nothing of any substance. So we don't know. And I said, so what did you do? Because I want to tell, you know, all my people. So it's very simple, I got your book, I got a highlighter pen, I went through it, I changed my diet radically, I took all the supplements, and it went. So it's not a claim, but that's what he said. Uh, so I think the first thing to understand is that the, the big error that has been made um, is that the only approach you know, is to sort of, is to like kill it, chop it out, burn it out, drug it out. When actually, if you understand that it's the environment around our cells that is causing a cell to switch, to try and survive, it's not getting the nutrients it needs, and it has to switch to a, it's trying to live. You know, mm -hmm. That's all it's trying to do. 
Now we do know in most cancers, sugar feeds cancer cell growth. And there's a terribly simple uh, proof of this, that if, you have, uh, if you're sort of suspected of having cancer, you have a, what's called a PET scan. And a PET scan, and they inject you with this fluoridated glucose, sugar. Um, and if it, they find the cancer cell because the sugar, the fluoridated sugar, goes to the cancer cell. So in other words, that's just saying for a fact yeah. that, 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 that the fuel for cancer is sugar. Is it? Yes. Uh, it's, it's, you know, there's some cancers where it's not quite like that, mm -hmm. but definitely. So, you know, when cancer research said obesity is now the major cause of cancer, I said, no, it's not. Obesity is not the cause of cancer. Um, it's the thing that it's the causes sugar that causes obesity. the obesity. Exactly. Gotcha. You know, yeah. et cetera. Yeah. So, yes, there's no question. And probably, you know, some research in Italy attributes 15% of the risk of breast cancer to eating um, sweets and sweet foods, you know, for example. So it, it's, you know, certainly sugar is a factor. Um, we also know that um, the more antioxidants in fruits and veg and multicolored foods, etc., you know, that reduces risk. Vitamin C, we know having a lot of vitamin C, definitely reduces risk. One of the very hard things to measure and get a handle on uh, is all the chemicals that we're exposed to, you right. know, from yeah. the glyphosates in Roundup, which yeah. is now classified as potential carcinogen. So BPA in our bottles that we're yeah, drinking. With I mean, there's water there's there's lots. So I've always been a fan of organic, uh, yeah. simply because it's what we've always eaten. Yeah. You know, and uh, you know, pesticides and herbicides are basically substances that you know kill and poison. And all that happens is we we get a smaller amount over a longer period of time. So you know that that could be a factor. And of course, um, everybody says they're not dangerous because they're going to say that because they're manufacturing something to make money. And but. Well, it'll take us another probably 100 years to find out the truth because well, you'll need to do over a sustained period of time to see if a little drip, drop of pesticide and herbicides will make never, an effect. We'll, we'll, we'll probably never know. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, about 10 years ago, and this is a bit controversial, um, you know, for listeners, um, but uh, there was a survey which found that uh, left-handed people had more um, left-sided brain tumours and right-handed people had more right-sided brain tumors. You know, we're talking about mobile phones. And uh, there is this rather aggressive brain cancer, which is very much on the increase. It's gone up, you know, tenfold in the last 20 or so years, which is called glioblastoma. And it, it doesn't have a, you know, its average survival is like 12 months from diagnosis. So it's very right, fast. Okay. Now, um, uh, two years ago, very, very big study in Top Journal um, says that 10 years mobile phone use doubles, more than doubles, the risk of, of glioblastoma. So we have an association. And then last year, there was a very good study which took these glioma cells, exposed them to the amount that would be normal in a call, and found that the DNA fragmented and, you know, bad things happened. So we have a, a mechanism. We'll never have a proof. Sure. Because it's a, it takes 10 years to develop. So you'd have to have two groups for 10 years, all doing the same thing, yep. except one using mobile phones and the other not. So, of course, we're in a technological age. We're not going to stop. You know, but little things like, you know, I dial someone here. Yep. You know, I wait until it rings and then I, you know, then I have a chat with them, usually on the speakerphone. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sticking, you know, when you've only got one bar, so the phone is really, you know, pumping, pumping to get out. a signal yep. and you stick it against your ear and you natter endlessly for half an hour, you know, we 
So there are things that we don't like to hear, yeah. you know, because we so like the sugar and we I, like that. I, I said yeah. to my, my children, two of them yeah. use mobiles way too much. The yeah. others aren't too bad. But yeah. I said, three things you should do. If you can't get a good signal, get closer to the window, exactly what you said. Yeah. Try and get as many bars as you can. That means the phone's not pumping out yeah. as much EMF. I said, secondly, try never to put it up to your head. Yeah. And then the third one, my one daughter, Jessie, really got uh, fixated having to read, read some stuff I, I wrote about a good night's sleep with an app measuring her sleep. And I said, well, where'd you put it? She said, well, it has to be right next to my head. I said, well, oh, crikey. <laughs> okay, well, I need to get a good night's sleep. You yeah. don't need an app to tell you you're getting a good night's sleep and yeah, doing yeah. probably more harm than good yeah. having it sitting by you know, your pillow all night. Um, um, so and if on the other side you've got your digital phone base station, yes, right, yeah, and it's uh, zapping it, across it, exactly. And what it does is it suppresses the production of melatonin, which is what helps you to sleep, um, which is a very powerful antioxidant. So, so yes, you know, we we've sort of got to get back to the way we are designed, you know, to eat. I think stress is a factor as well. And uh, you know, Professor Robert Lustig, you know, uh, who I know you have on this yeah, program. Amazing. I mean, the, the whole process by which, you know, both with sugar addiction and also caffeine, that's part of it too, uh, and tech addiction, we end up like in this permanent state of adrenalization, right? We're in this sort of endless anxiety. And of course we watch the news and it's always bad and you just kind of never, ever, ever switch off. So once again, uh, you know, our ancestors would have been very chilled, except when they were, you know, hunting and needing that adrenaline response. And what happens is when you go into an adrenal fight flight type response, um, your body channels all the energy into, you know, running, fighting, etc., and it takes it away from your immune system. So if you're permanently in a state of stress and anxiety, um, your body's immune system will not be able to fight cells that don't look right. So I think that's part of it too. So get down on the stress as in over a long period, short yeah. stress, the odd bit of exercising yeah. is good for us, we know that. Yeah. Uh, but cut down on the stress, cut down on the sugars, keep your nutrition good um, for certain cancers. Don't have too much milk once you're an adult. Yeah. Um, that's, that's all really And more fish, advice. less meat, I would say. Not no meat, but more fish, less meat. And what about somebody that's recovering from cancer? My, Deborah, who looks after uh, my house, a uh, housekeeper, uh, 53, 54, yeah. just recovering now from ovarian cancer. Not quite the all clear yet, but you know, really putting her weight back on now and, and, and looking a lot healthier. What advice for people that are in recovery? Is that pretty much the same, cut down on the sugar? or? Well, yeah, I mean, the, the difficult thing about the whole cancer area is while we can say all of these things are a good lifestyle to prevent cancer, um, there, when, when someone actually has cancer, it starts to become a slightly different thing. So I know one of the things we wrote about in the book in relation to the brain cancers, glioblastoma. Uh, this is the work of Professor um, Thomas Seafried at Harvard. Um, he's using a ketogenic diet, uh, no carbs. And the idea there is, you know, starving those particular kind of cancer cells of any sugar fuel. Now, I hesitate to say, I, I won't say that's the right thing for all cancers because it isn't, because a cancer cell is trying to survive. And if you starve it of all sugars, it's going to look for another fuel. Right, okay. You know? Yep. So we know, for example, the very high protein, sometimes cancer cells use protein um, to get 
You know, they're just trying to survive. Yeah. So it's very hard when someone's actually got cancer uh, to say, you know, you have to do this or this or this. And sometimes it's actually worth switching. And uh, also the whole process of, of uh, chemotherapy is, is, I mean, ideally what you want to do is to weaken a cancer cell by not supplying it with all these growth nutrients and then have a period of time where you really whack it. Uh, and that's what sort of chemo drugs do. I actually think the best uh, results are achieved by combining some of the natural approaches. Things like turmeric, the curcumin, berberine, there are high dose vitamin C, yeah. you know, there's some very interesting things in the nutritional category. But you know, without getting into too much detail, what we can do now, which is amazing, um, and I won't see anybody who hasn't had this, uh, and I'm always working with our oncologist, is, is, is called chemosensitivity testing. Cost a couple of grand. But what happens is they take the actual cancer cells, they gene sequence them, wow. that they find out exactly where their strengths and weaknesses are, no what fuel they're running on the whole lot. Oh. They then expose the cancer cells to all the chemo drugs and all the natural agents to find out which ones are most likely to be the most effective. And uh, this is the future, a very personalized, intelligent, informed way of going, you know, what do I do now? Give uh, me that name again. It's called Well, it's called chemo sensitivity testing. Okay. Uh, one of the labs I use is called RGCC. Um, they're, they're based in Greece. But I think the point is we've learned so much now that what you need to, you know, to deal with cancer cells is actually a different story to what you need to prevent, prevent it. Gotcha. And it's a more gotcha. complicated story. Look, we've, yeah. we've got to the end of the hour. We will do another hour very shortly. It's been fascinating. Uh, for everybody at home, Patrick has written lots of books. Uh, there's great advice on uh, prevention of arthritis, etc. There's several books around Alzheimer's and cognitive function. The latest book is where you've got to start. The, the hybrid diet is absolutely fantastic. Get this one. You'll be addicted to Patrick's work. Uh, and uh, other than that, your website, tell everybody about your website, how they can find out more. Yeah, my website's patrickholford.com. There's a lot of free information in there. There's a search bar, just put in your problem. The chances are I've written about it, so that's good. And uh, if you're interested in preventing Alzheimer's or mental health, go to our charity, foodforthebrain.org. That's been absolutely fascinating. Lots of action points hopefully there for you. and. Uh, uh, hopefully Patrick will be joining us very soon. Thank you for your time. If you enjoyed the podcast and would also like to watch it online, you can find a webcam version on YouTube or the Primal Living website, www.primalliving.com. The Fat and Furious podcast is the perfect introduction to helping you and those you love live happier and healthier for longer. And if you are a fan of the series then please let your friends and family know. They'll truly thank you for it, and so will we. Until next time, live life naturally.